Welcome to In the Green Chair, an interview podcast series for people looking to begin or expand their career in the green economy. I'm your host, Anna Garza, and today's guest in the green chair is artist and creative Benjamin Von Wong. You can't just think about, oh, I want to create this because I feel the need to create it. Think about also how is it going to be received? Um, how are people going to use it? How how can others also talk about it? Like, what are the secondary and tertiary impacts of whatever it is you're creating? And I just think there's so much more opportunity to push art forward. I just think it's a very underutilized tool in our toolkit for change. In this episode, we discuss Benjamin's career as an artist, photographer, and sculptor, and how he is on a mission to create art that amplifies positive social change. Benjamin creates complicated images and symbolic sculptures by combining everyday objects with shocking statistics to bring about awareness on topics such as ocean plastics and electronic waste. We learn about the role art and creativity play in solving complex environmental issues. Well, welcome to the Green Chair, Benjamin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's a uh, winter wonderland uh, right now here in Boston, but you know, I'm indoors, so it's nice. You have quite an interesting career journey. You currently are a creative photographer and artist, but you started off as a mining engineer first. So how did you transition from a mining engineer to becoming a photographer? While I was working in a hard rock mine in Winnemucca, Nevada, which is about an hour away from Burning Man, a girl broke up with me and I was like, okay, I need to find something to do. Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy. And I looked up and I was like, the stars are pretty. I'm going to go buy a camera and try to take pictures of the stars. So that's how it started. I have always had a habit of picking up new hobbies. And there was no expectation that it was actually going to stick. But it just so happened that photography was sort of this really amazing opportunity to have conversations that I would never have otherwise, meet people that I would never meet normally. This is like the equivalent of a backstage pass. You could go places you would never get invited to and just became something that was much more a, a lifestyle that I found really interesting and wanted to do more of. That's amazing. So was that your first experience picking up a camera with the night sky? Yes, that was the first first photo I did. I basically, I bought a camera in Walmart and trying to take pictures of the stars with that and it wasn't good enough. So I returned it, I bought the most expensive camera that was at Walmart and that was also not good enough. So then I had to like borrow a car to drive to the next city over to then go buy a camera to then go take, like I sat down in a Starbucks, read the manual and then went to take pictures. So, you know, just the kind of random exploration you might do. But for some reason, this one just actually stuck. Yeah, I was going to say, taking pictures of the night sky is like one of the hardest things and you just kind of jumped into it. So <laughs> so then what informal and formal education did you pursue around surrounding photography and just your general career background? Nothing. I just took pictures and read tutorials on the internet and slowly got better, took over my evenings and my weekends. And three years later, I decided to quit my day job, not because I necessarily wanted to be an artist more because I just didn't want to be an engineer. So much more of what I create today is, you know, big scale productions, campaigns, there's videos, there's marketing, there's the social impact components to it. And so there are these sort of multi-stakeholder campaigns that are now being created, of which photography is one component of it. So on the topic of social impacts, when you and I met before, you told me that artists need to do more than just raise awareness and touch people's hearts. In other words, you said that the bar is too low for artists. So what does designing better art projects look like? Yeah, so maybe to give a little bit of context on that, you know, I think art is, is uh, 
it has an interesting sort of reputation, right? Like on one hand, some people think it's totally useless. On the other, people think that art is what it means to be human, right? Like to create art, you know, humans are the only species to really create art. And so there's this sort of like weird, I think, cultiness to it in that, you know, everyone is an artist, you know, as long as you're creating and expressing yourself, that's great. But I think art is so much more than that. Like, yes, all the things in how it's a powerful tool for self-expression and self-reflection, but also it is like a completely different and unique way of communicating with others. And I just think that if we, if we, if we leave the bar at so long as your art is touching someone, it's just too easy. I mean, it's like saying like, oh, my dream in life is to just change the life of one person or or something like that. It's it's kind of like saying, well, I hope you're going to affect the life of at least one person. Actually, I don't even think it's possible for you not to live a life and affect the people around you. And so it's like, okay, that's that's like a baseline. Baseline is like do work that is meaningful both to you and to the people around you. But on top of that, think of how the work can be used in the context of of whatever change you're trying to bring about in the world. You can't just think about oh, I want to create this because I feel the need to create it. Think about also how is it going to be received? Um, how are people going to use it? How how can others also talk about it? Like what are the secondary and tertiary impacts of whatever it is you're creating? And I just think there's so much more opportunity to push art forward. I just think it's a very underutilized tool in our toolkit for change. And one of your projects, your three-story tall Turn Off the Plastic Tap sculpture, depicting a faucet leaking plastic instead of water is a global campaign. Can you tell us what is the message behind this art installation? Yeah, so within the plastics movement, there is a saying that basically says we need to turn off the plastic tap. And essentially the metaphor is if your bathtub was overflowing with water, would you start mopping the floor or would it make more sense to like turn off the faucet? And I think that when we apply that analogy to plastics, what we have right now is, you know, every single year since, I don't know, the last 50 years or whatever, since plastics was invented, plastic production keeps going up. And yet, you know, we're focused so much on beach cleanups and recycling, which are, yes, important, but it's also important to start addressing that we need to turn off the plastic tap. We need to stop production. We need to start designing better products that last longer and not just keep producing the very thing that we're trying to get rid of. And this campaign was just an invitation to start that conversation. I think there's a lot of art that address the downstream consequences of plastics, like a lot of like sculptures of animals with plastics and talking about how their lives are impacted by it. And like, that's true. Those are all true. But I think that plastic production as something that is just a very important and critical issue also needs to be addressed. And so the installation was an attempt at making sure that that conversation stayed top of mind. Definitely. And we've even seen it more recently with the pandemic, all the single-use plastic production just rising and people being a bit more careless around that too. So it's important to spread that message. You know, on one hand, you can say, yes, it's the consumer's responsibility to purchase more responsibly. But at the same time, there are fewer and fewer products that you can buy that don't have plastic. Like the optionality has been taken away. So like if you try to go and do groceries in, a, in an average grocery store, um, especially if you're not like in some major liberal city in a Western world, your choices are pretty reduced. Companies, corporations, governments, and individuals all need to work together to start addressing this issue of plastic production. And yes, it's a big, complicated, thorny issue, but each one of us can do our part and change can happen, which is something that we've 
seen recently with the Global Plastics Treaty at the United Nations, where 1,500 delegates from 193 different countries all came together to basically define what a global resolution for a Global Plastics Treaty might look like. And it was a success to the point where you know, even the biggest polluters are voting for this resolution to create a legally binding treaty that helps to empower, that offers financial aid to developing countries, that keeps in consideration the 20 million waste pickers from the informal waste economy. Like, basically, it's the best thing that could have possibly happened in the plastics movement. And for the people who are kind of wondering, like, wait, why would the big polluters, like the Nestle's, the Coca-Cola's, and so forth, like, why, why would they be for a global plastics treaty when they're the ones producing it? Well, at the end of the day, these are corporations um, that are controlled by their shareholders, right? And, and because we live in a capitalist system um, and, and these companies are legally bound to generate as much profits for their shareholders as possible, they need resolutions and rules and regulations and laws that help them even the playing field. So if there are if there are rules that start saying, oh, you need to you need to start using plastics by the year 2030, that you know 80% of the plastics you use have to be made from recycled content. They can't be made from virgin materials anymore. Then that evens the playing field. It means like, oh, everyone can now start charging more and stop racing to the bottom. And so um, regulation levels the playing field, and these corporations who are also run by people also recognize that it's a problem. And so the binary of saying corporations bad and people good, like just doesn't quite work. Yeah. Everyone's part of the issue and everyone's part of solving the issue too. Exactly. We'll be right back. This interview series is part of the Green Collar Careers Program brought to you by Relay Education. Relay is a Canadian charity that delivers renewable energy, environmental education, and green careers programs for youth. Remember to check out our website, relayeducation.com, and social media channels at Relay Education to find out when our next interview will be posted and to find resources on how to start your green career. So I'm curious, what's your sustainability story? How did your interest in sustainability and work align? Yeah, so I think I have like an atypical environmentalist story. I think uh, most of the environmentalists I meet have some kind of childhood happy memories of being in nature and just loving to be wild and free. And they love either the oceans or the animals or something like that. And that was just not the case for me. I've grown up in cities all around the world. I am a creature of comfort. I like warm water and the internet. And so, you know, while I do enjoy the occasional camping trip, it's definitely not something that like, that I have any like deep longing towards. And, and that still remains true today. However, sometime in 2015, after having experienced some success as an artist, I just started wondering like, well, what's the point of earning money and getting campaigns to sell more products or do another campaign to sell more products to get more followers. Like it just felt like very shallow. And I started trying to inject purpose into whatever it is that I did, not knowing which cause to pursue. And I just kind of started watching documentaries, started funding my own projects. I did a climate change project after watching Cowspiracy and Racing Extinction, uh, decided that I needed to be vegetarian because you need to change at least one thing in your own life instead of just pontificating to others. Um, I did another piece on shark conservation. I did a third on plastic. And I think that the more I did projects on the environment, the more I learned about it. And the more you learn about something, the harder it is to turn away from it. 
and I sort of got dragged kicking and screaming into the environmental movement. And the reason I say that is because it's, it's actually quite inconvenient to become an environmentalist, to switch from being a consumer to being an environmentalist, because it's so much more fun to buy new shiny sparkly things that you want just because you want them. And it's a lot harder to like exercise restraint and ask yourself like, wait, is this something that I really need? Will this make me happy? I think I take a lot of pride in the intentionality with which I move through the world. And Part of me, you know, I think that internet intentionality is actually like a really cool thing because it gives you purpose. This thing sort of anchors you somewhere and gives you friendships. It gives you community. It gives you purpose. It gives you opportunities to learn and travel and, and do so much more. Definitely. And and you mentioned in your answer that, you know, you grew up in so many different cities and even now in the nature of your job requires you to travel. Since you and I first got into contact one month ago, I think you've traveled to four different countries <laughs> in that time. So what has traveling taught you as an artist? I mean, I think traveling just gives you so much perspective. It just shows you how other people are living and, and perceiving the world. You know, we live in a world of stories. There are just so many different narratives that exist. Like, so this project that I did at the United Nations was like, maybe just, maybe just give one, give one example. So like I was working out of the slums in Kibera. It's a area the size of Central Park that houses 1.2 million people living on about like $2 a day. And so you go from like working in a place like that, seeing the poverty and the lack of access to resources in which people are living and then obviously you know if they if they can't feed their families like where is the environment going to be featured on their list of priorities and so you get to really like see that and feel that and observe it and to see that they're you know just as much a victim as much as a perpetrator and then and then you can actually then just float off to the united nations where it's this gated pristine community but then you as the artist as a person that's traveling between these worlds can help bridge these perspectives it means that you're less likely to play the blame game and when you start seeing that then you can start upgrading your own level of awareness over around yourself and hopefully help others do the same so i just think that travel and learning and growing and and being curious is intrinsically a part of like the change that we need to see in the world you're in such a unique position that's so powerful to be the mediator between the two in a way because you're connecting stories and you're sharing those. Yeah, they say that artists are the only ones that can sit at the table of kings and peasants. Like there's no hierarchy to where art lives because it's so so integral to the human experience. And I think that's just like a really fun space to be in. That it would be a really fun space, I think. <laughs> and I know, so you talked about your pr most recent project in February in Nairobi. And I know that there's a lot of collaboration that goes on in with your work having people from local spaces help you creating your art installations. So why is collaboration important for you and for your work? What great things have ever been done alone? <laughs> I, like, I just don't think that you can do very much as an individual. When I first started out, like I was a photographer. And so if you're a photographer, then you need something to photograph, right? So then let's say you bring in a model. Now you have a model to photograph, but then that model needs like hair. So you get a hairstylist and then that model needs makeup. Now you got a makeup artist and then you want to put them in an outfit. Now you got a fashion designer. You know, and then if you want to like really upgrade it, then you start building a set or studio or lighting, and then you need some volunteers, you need some help. And then suddenly you have like this entire village coming together just to produce like a single image. And I think I've taken that same mentality for the projects that I've done, which is that, you know, I don't need to learn how to become a makeup artist, a model and, a, you know, a hairstylist and, and, and build my own costumes. Like some people do that, but I just think that it's a lot more 
powerful to find the folks who are in their zone of genius doing amazing things themselves and collaborating with them. You know, these projects that I do, which look really large and really impressive, are actually the byproduct of just finding a couple of the right people. And so rather than be intimidated by the size of something, start thinking more about the scope of like what you want that vision to be and and start finding and drawing those people to you. And I think for anyone who who like wants to do big projects, you have to remember that no one's going to let you go from like doing nothing to organizing a thousand person event. If you spend a year organizing gatherings every single weekend and it's gone from like you and your friends to then to now like 10 or 100 people and you're bringing like your classmates together and you're activating people and people are really showing up recurrently, you know, someone is going to want to take a risk on you and someone is going to say like, oh, this person is a hustler. They know what they're doing. They really care. And then and then bigger things can happen. And so as with so many things, it's about what do you really want going for it, proving that you can do it, and then finding the like unlikely allies that will help you accomplish it. Yeah, it's like a snowball movement, right? I mm-hmm. just kept thinking of a little snowball analogy turning into a huge, <laughs> huge yeah. snowball at the end. <laughs> so exactly what it is. The goal that you set out with your art is to transform the seemingly impossible into making it possible and conceivable. What can we learn from your approach to art projects when it comes to addressing environmental issues? When it comes to my projects specifically, they're complicated, but they're not complex. I think that when it comes to like big environmental or social issues, it's very complex. There are a lot of moving pieces. Things aren't binary, right and wrong. And so you kind of have to be able to hold space for like two truths to simultaneously exist that may not actually agree with one another. Whereas I think my art, on the other hand, is just complicated. And so people look at it and then they get this sense of like, oh, wow, like, how did you do it? But then if you start breaking it down to smaller, smaller parts, it becomes very obvious. But what are the commonalities between the two? I think that when when people see that something that they previously thought was impossible become possible, that gives them the inspiration to then tackle more complex issues. I don't think that it's so much that the act of tackling complicated art projects like mine truly helps people solve complex environmental issues. However, I think it gives people resilience. It gives them hope. It gives them a sense of possibility. It gives them a sense of forward motion. It gives them new tools in which to communicate something that they've been working on for a very long time. And I think, so I think the benefits are actually tangential to the whole thing. And so I see the role of like, the artist almost like that of like a cheerleader. So when you're creating these complicated scenes and you're behind the camera, you're looking through the camera, what what does photography mean to you in those moments? It's kind of stressful. But on the other hand, like I think photography has a number of very fixed rules. So if you've done a really good job in your pre-production setting everything up, then by the time you reach the camera stage, there's not that much you can do. You can just kind of move your camera around, set the framing. And so I guess it's it's like dual, right? Like one, there's a lot of pressure, but it's not purely pressure because of the photography as the photography is hard, but it's, it's more like a culmination of like, this is all for this photograph kind of thing. That's the way the story is going to be spread once the whole thing is taken down. It's like an infinite resource. It can go on forever. It doesn't matter how many people see this image. It doesn't matter how many people use this image. It's still going to hold its value, right? So there's a lot of pressure to create the perfect thing. But at the same time, it's just a photograph. So that's how I feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it it can seem stressful, right? Because yeah, like you mentioned, you're working with so many different people and it leads up to this kind of moment. But then looking after that moment and once you have these prints and you've completed it what 
reaction have you found from people who look at your art? The common reaction is people find it really cool. They're, they're really surprised. They want to know how it's done. I think that the purpose of my work is to ignite a sense of curiosity. I think curiosity leads to conversation and conversation leads to change. And so for me, the goal is to ignite that curiosity. I want people to look at it and just be like, wait, what am I looking at? Tell me more. So once in a while, I'll receive like a message on Instagram from someone and they'll be like, hey, my teacher just showed your work in my class. And I'll be like, oh, cool. That's so fun. Like, I would have never guessed, like, how did they stumble across it? And so forth. And it's just fun to see those like secondary and tertiary reactions. I think like as an artist who puts work out into the universe, I think this is true of all artists. When you create something and you put it out into the world, it's rare to necessarily get feedback. So many more people, I think, are touched by the work than actually tell you that they're touched by the work. And so I think it's this balancing act of believing that what you do is making a difference and constantly asking yourself how you can do better as you you know, collect the feedback from other people as, as they react to whatever it is you did. Yeah, it seems like the reactions, just like how your um, art installations are complicated and you break it down and one thing connects the other. So is the reactions that sparks curiosity, then conversations and change. I liked that kind of chain of reaction that you t talked about. And your latest turn off the plastic tap art installation, again in Nairobi, was entirely funded by the metaverse. Can you tell me how that happened? <laughs> so the group that funded this project is called the Degenerate Trash Pandas. And so I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because it's kind of weird, right? Like people are buying JPEG profile pictures for large sums of money online. And because there was a connection between the Degenerate Trash Pandas and the idea of saying, haha, the Degenerate Trash Pandas are gonna put some trash at the United Nations, which really was just a funny thing for them, you know, they found it compelling enough to, to decide to fund this art installation. And so it's really weird on one hand, and then it's really cool on the other hand. For me, art, as, as we've said multiple times, is this amazing sort of grease between the wheels. And so if art can be the reason why you can take people from the metaverse and connect them to a real world global issue that's happening at the United Nations in like a historical moment in time, and art can be the catalyst for that. Like, it's, it's fantastic. And so not only did these degenerate trash pandas decide to fund the creation of the art installation, we also said, well, if we're going to be building this art installation, why don't we run a fundraiser at the same time for people in the slums of Kibera? Because, you know, why just wait for people at the United Nations to make an impact? Let's, let's create a direct impact on our own. And so we ended up raising over like $100,000. I don't know, it's tremendously powerful to think that like a group of random internet folks come together, collaborate with an artist, raise $100,000 and build an art installation at the United Nations. Like it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. So I'm still wrapping my head around it. And going more into your career on the career side of things, what kind of approach do you take in your career? My career is a mess from the inside, but from the outside, it's like, it looks like a phenomenal success. And I think that that's just a byproduct of storytelling. Um, and I think this is true of like most people, like I don't know. We have this story. So I'm 35 years old and there's a story that like, oh, by 35 years old, you got gray hair and you're supposed to know where you're going. And I don't know where I'm going. And I don't think most people actually do. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't think it's any different with art. I'm constantly trying to figure out how can I create work that is both efficient and effective. And I think my work is very effective because of its scale, its scope, its, you know, the, the amplitude of the work. But I think at the same time, it's not very efficient. I think it requires like a phenomenal amount of time, energy and effort. And I am constantly asking myself, well, how can I take the art that I create and how can I scale it so that it become more efficient? How can it reach more people with less effort? And 
and happen in greater frequency. As an artist, you try to do work, I think, that is very unique and different because you want to stand out and the scarcity of you and your time and your effort is what creates the value. But as an activist, you kind of want everybody to copy you because the more your thing is copied, the more change it can bring into the world. And so I'm constantly prototyping. My shift from photography to art installations was one example of that. Basically, I came to the realization that if I'm going to be building these big, complicated sets and then just taking a photo and tearing them down, not only was it just supremely wasteful <laughs> from a materials perspective, but it just felt like an inefficient way of getting the message out there because the value of a photograph within the context of social media, if someone's just gonna see it for two seconds, double tap and move on, just doesn't make sense. But if you build an art installation and anyone can go to the art installation and anyone can take a photo and anyone can post it online, well then now that single art installation is gonna generate significantly more value over its lifetime. And in a way it was like, that was one way of open sourcing my creativity. These days I continue to explore and experiment. I think my work has started shifting from creating art installations that are really hard to replicate to art installations that are more symbolic. And so this giant faucet is a symbol. And so because it's a symbol, it can be recreated, but it doesn't actually need to look exactly the same. Looking back on your career so far, what are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud that I have been able to stick to my values, you know, and those values have changed over time, but I've, I, I, I don't let myself be distracted for too long by fame or glory or popularity or anything along those lines. Like I just do what I think is right. And I think I just feel a lot of pride when it comes to the intentionality with which I have created a life even though I'm still not necessarily satisfied or content with where I'm at. And so it's kind of like this, this journey, but I'm, I'm proud of the way I have pursued the journey. Is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I think, I think simply the, you know, maybe this is the notion that like the greatest threat to the environment isn't like people that are destroying it. It's people who just are apathetic to it. Like people who just give up and say like, I can't do anything. My voice is not enough. And I just think that there's like so much potential in the world for people to just do something, anything, and to start where they're at. It's kind of like a marathon. If you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, at some point you look back and you're like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm halfway there or whatever it is. It's, it's kind of the same when it comes to social change. It's all about how can I ensure that I am constantly moving in a direction that I want to and that I am proud of. How can our listeners connect with you and find out more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the beauty is that I'm very easy to find. So if you just search Von Wong, V-O-N-W-O-N-G, anywhere on the interwebs, you will find me on all the social platforms. Well, thanks so much for joining us again today. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for sitting down with us in the green chair today. Once again, I'm your host, Anna Garza. And stay tuned for our next episode to learn more about the different paths people take to working in the green economy.